They're known as the forever chemical, and essentially because they don't degrade. They integrate in the environment. They also don't degrade in your body. They're also in receipts. Recently, found out that they're also in toilet paper. They're in contact lenses. They're on furniture, right? They're they're everywhere. And so, about ninety eight percent of people have PFAS in their blood, and it doesn't degrade. And this is a harmful chemical. All right, welcome to another episode of Liquid Assets, where we talk about the intersection of policy, technology, and management, all looking at water. Today, we have an awesome guest for you today. It's Julie Mullen from Aclarity Water. Hi, my name is Julie Blissmullen. I'm the founder and CEO of Aclarity. At Aclarity, we develop and deploy proprietary electrochemical systems that destroy PFAS forever. I'm going to go ahead and hand the mic over to you, Julie. If you can just kind of tell us who you are, what you're working on, where you live, your background. Let's let's jump into who is Julie. Thanks, Ravi, for having me. I'm the founder and CEO of Aclarity. We're based in Massachusetts. I, I'm actually outside in our in our sunroom. I just got some new furniture, which is awesome. So hanging out here, live in central Massachusetts with my husband and my two kids. They're almost two and almost four, so really fun ages. Our lab is also in Massachusetts, just south of Boston. So in a town called Mansfield. What we do at Aclarity is we develop and deploy and service systems that destroy PFAS and liquid waste. So we go on site to customers that are owners and operators of landfills, also working with other technology providers that concentrate PFAS, and and, and then we destroy this chemical. Let's talk a whole lot more about PFAS, too, so everyone, everyone understands what that is. Yeah, and, you know, the issue that we're solving right now is really, it's it's a PFAS, right? So PFAS stands for per and polyfluoral alkyl substances. And I love to quiz people after, just kidding. But <laughs> this, this is kind of crazy chemical name for this massive group, 14,000 plus chemicals in this group of PFAS, you know, this PFAS substances. They're typically used in products that resist water and resist oil. So think about raincoats or nonstick pans, right? Teflon pans. They're also in receipts. Recently found out that they're also in toilet paper. They're in contact lenses. They're on furniture, right? They're, they're, they're everywhere, everywhere. They're known as the forever chemical. And essentially because they don't degrade. They integrate in the environment. They also don't degrade in your body. And so about 98% of people have PFAS in their blood and it doesn't degrade. And this is a harmful chemical. It's, it's likely carcinogenic. It's toxic and it causes a lot of, a lot of health, you know, issues, especially in, in areas where PFAS has been, has been found in the environment. There are a lot of cancer clusters around, around those areas. So it's pretty terrible. And because these are forever chemicals, it's very difficult to break them down. And we've actually found a way to very efficiently and cost-effectively break them down in, in liquid streams. That's awesome. Yeah, we're going to, I definitely want to double click into kind of how you actually destroy PFAS, but let's, let's let me take a step back and go to like, what, what is PFAS, right? You said it's obviously the, the forever chemical. It is resist water and oil. Like for the audience out there, did we have PFAS before? Is it a thousand year old chemical that's like now coming out? Is it similar to lead? Like what's, can you give us the history on PFAS and like why it's so bad? Yeah, definitely. So PFAS was manufactured in the early to mid-1900s, and it's a super chemical, right? It, it resists water, it resists oil, it has these really great uh, features, right? So it's, it's been used in a, in a lot of industries. And although you can probably look this up and 
and debated, but hasn't been known publicly that it's been a harmful chemical until the 70s or so publicly. And it's in this, it's been this massive movement, this massive public movement, sort of a bottom up type of movement to, to start to remove PFAS from our environment from, you know, drinking water, groundwater, wastewater, soil, you know, and then, and then actually even, even at the, at the facility, a lot of companies are trying to find alternatives, PFAS alternatives, so they can still have those really nice features that the chemical is, is able to provide, but not have the really devastating effects that are associated with it. From the regulatory standpoint, it is PFAS, regulating PFAS anywhere in the environment is a mess. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. And if you were to Google PFAS, just straight up, you'll find a million articles, a million news, you know, news, news pieces that, that come up. And uh, yeah, every day there's, there's breaking news on, on, the, on the PFAS side. So someone is suing somebody else. The municipalities try to solve the problem because they have to t- high detects of PFAS. And it's just, it's, it's quite nuts. And states have taken the lead in regulating PFAS in different types of media. And I say in, in your water, water and, and soil mostly. The federal government has proposed regulations around drinking water. Some of the work is kind of trickling down to the Clean Water Act, which is, and then more into the states <laughs> and so some discharge permits and, and, and actually most, most recently and, and, and kind of different from my perspective is the fact that the EPA is trying to classify PFAS chemicals, a handful of chemicals now as hazardous substances, which is really turning the industry upside down because if all of PFAS is everywhere, it's PFAS in our in my room, and if if that is all not considered hazardous, or at least the disposal of that is hazardous, it's really going to be really really expensive. That the trash business is going to be really expensive. That triples down to the municipalities because they receive the wastewater, right? So the wastewater from all this nasty trash water that le- that leachate from the landfills. So it's just it's really it's really quite quite crazy. It's important to regulate it. It's also important to understand the alternatives out there and, and how it's going to affect people every day. Yeah. Yeah, entirely. And so you you had mentioned that it was it was made in the early 1900s. We made this chemical for in raincoats and like, you know, it, where, where was it primarily used when we first started manufacturing it in the in the early 1900s? The early 1900s. I know, well, I can tell you that it's it's not predominantly and it's predominantly used in firefighting phones. So, you know, if you go, you know, if your house is on fire, if my house was on fire and my kids were inside, I would probably prefer for the firefighters to put the fire out than, than let it burn. Although, interestingly, I have read some papers that show that this firefighting film actually isn't as, doesn't work. I should say water from a hose they have found can be equally as effective as firefighting foam. So that's, that is, that is really good, but it's traditionally been used in firefighting foam. It's really big in the semiconductor industry. There's a lot of, a lot mm. of PFAS that's very critical to, to, to semiconductors and, and, uh, you know, parts within, within that industry, pans, their pot, pots and pans. And that was one sure. of the early, you know, yeah, adhesives, right? This is just, it, it's, yep. it's everything. So we, we started manufacturing this chemical back in the early 1900s for pots and pans and, and fire, fire retardants and semiconductors. And then we kind of fast forward to today or the, or, or the 1970s, right? Where you said where there was this big bubble up movement of people starting to finally realize, Hey, this, this chemical is carcinogenic. It's not healthy for us. And then you end up to kind of today where the, the states and the federal government are 
pushing regulation through the EPA, through the Clean Water Act, through just state governments regulating this both from a water and a soil standpoint. Are we still manufacturing it today? And like, where does that regulation reach to and from? Like, are we still using it and manufacturing it in the semiconductor industry? And then like the whole, like the real business model here is some, somebody like a clarity that can basically clean the downstream so it doesn't get back into humans or like what's, what's kind of the solution where we, where we stand at today, given, given where we, where we came from. We are still using it in, in most industries. As I said, they have found some green alternatives in, in, in some, some industries, although Sometimes the alternatives are even more toxic than than the ones that they're replacing, which is not great. So, can you can you remind me what was the question? What was the original question? Yeah, it's it's kind of like we we had this riding this train from the early 1900s of manufacturing it. We figured out there's a problem, and other states and federal government trying to regulate it. Yeah. What's the kind of state of PFAS today? Like, are we are we still manufacturing it? And if we are, you know, is it What's the fix? Like, how do we how do we fix this problem? Because we clearly know it is a problem. Yeah, yeah. So, so right. So that's where I was going. So the there are a fair amount of industries who are looking for alternatives and trying to phase it out. Some companies have committed to phasing it out in their products, or even even on the manufacturing side of actually manufacturing PFAS chemicals. I think that they are so useful in various different industries that they're not ever going to be phased out. Mm-hmm. And and I think that while designing for the environment and really truly phasing them out and replacing them with with greener and 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 better better alternatives for humans and for the environment for for, for animals etc. is great. I do foresee that they're going to be manufactured for quite some time and I do think that the way the way to limit exposure is clean the areas where they're Waste, 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 essentially. Got it. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense, which which I guess kind of leads us perfectly into what Eclarity does, given your your explanation in the beginning, right? So you guys focus on landfills right now and other tech providers that are basically cleaning up PFAS. Walk us through how that works, right? You said that where there are la- large areas of PFAS in a landfill or something, you've seen more prevalence of, of people that have cancer. How does Eclarity fix this? Yeah. From the landfill standpoint, and actually, I'm getting an echo. Are you getting an echo? No, not too much. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think we can, we can, we should be able to also clean that out from the, from the post-production side of, of okay. the podcast. Okay. That's great. All right. So from, from the landfill side, when it rains, the rainwater trickles through all that trash, essentially, right? Right through the landfill. And then there's something called leachate that comes out. Now it's pretty nasty, concentrated liquid waste. It's, it looks, muddy it's 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 gross and it has heavy metals it has a lot of organics like solvents and surfactants and lots lots of just kind of pretty nasty stuff and a lot of that and a lot of PFAS that come out right that comes out from the landfill the PFAS is fairly concentrated I mean like there's there's a lot of PFAS in there it's a lot of volume of water that comes out but it's a lot smaller than say you know New York City is drinking you know we're not we're not talking billions of gallons a day we're talking you know Tens or tens or hundred thousand gallons per day, and and what we do is we deploy our equipment. So so the first phase is that we we or the first stage of of deployment is actually taking our mobile mobile trailers and driving them up, parking them, and inside of a mobile trailer is a full scale system of a full scale reactor that processes these this leachate essentially in a single pass. So where we we pull it up. We take a hose out, we hook it right up to the, to the, to the storage tanks and we start pumping the water through. We turn the, you know, we turn the power on and start pumping the water through and we destroy the PFAS, you know, instantaneously. 
we typically have a trailer at a customer's site for multiple weeks. Depends on how big the landfill is, how many streams they want us to treat, parameters that we may change could include the flow rate through the reactors and the um, electricity. Really, the voltage is what we control. And, uh, and then we transition to a full-scale system. And that's kind of where we are as a company. Is we are we have these mobile mobile deployments. We are commercializing and just wrapping up the final factory acceptance test, which is so exciting of our of our large, you know, our larger like permanent system that has eight reactors on on the skid. The skid is basically the housing of the reactors. Everything is fully fully automated. There's, you know, I can sit here on my computer and I can you know I can press start go start and go and play around with some of the settings and whatnot. So. It's, it's really neat. And that's how, and that's how we destroy PFAS and some other contaminants as well at, at landfills. And that's the majority of the focus of the company, right? Because from an, I mean, from an impact standpoint, almost 50% of PFAS in the, that's in the world ends up at a landfill. So we are, we are trying to go and really, you know, destroy PFAS forever, get it out of the cycle. <laughs> you know, we don't want to go back into the stream, going into the, into the oceans, into the rainwater, you know, to the wastewater treatment plant, just going back into the environment. We want to destroy it forever. And we do that permanently, you know, at landfills. And when we zoom out, we also have areas of focus working with some other channel partners and, and technology providers to, to build optimal, you know, water treat, water wastewater treatment trains to destroy PFAS and other, and other segments. So I'll give you an example. We're working with Denora Water Technologies with them. Um, combination of two technologies it's an ion exchange system which basically captures their little their little beads almost like a brita filter you can think of it like a brita filter where PFAS stick onto the stick onto the beads and then after they get after all the beads are saturated with PFAS then what we do is we rinse the beads off we now have a small volume still a very large volume but, but in general it's a smaller volume of this liquid waste it has a lot of PFAS and then run that run that brine right through our system, destroy the PFAS. And we even have, we have as much time as we need before the next rinse. So it's an awesome opportunity to get into markets like municipal drinking water, especially in small groundwater systems. It's just a perfect fit. We're scaling with other, with other partners as well into other industrial sectors and industrial manufacturing, like pulp and paper, for example, semiconductor, doing some of the up, up concentration if it's not concentrated already. And, and then doing the destruction on the back end. That's super cool, Julie. That's that's awesome. And when you when you kind of look at as much as you can share on how your technology works, right? You you have this this PFAS that's getting that's that, that that's part of the leachate or part of this Demora product in the little bubbles that you mentioned or little beads. What's actually happening in the in the Eclarity system? Like, are you are you creating a a sludge or a brine that's like PFAS only, and then you're you're kind of storing that or like electrocuting it. Like, what's 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 happening? How does the how do you, how do you take the PFAS out of out of these like waste streams? Great question. And we we essentially zap it, right? Like we electrocute it. You can think of the inside of a reactor as a battery in a way. One side is positive, one side is negative, so they're both electrically charged. And the PFAS essentially swim in this water and they stick onto the anode surface. It's the positive side, and we destroy break the carbon fluorine bond, which is the strongest bond known in nature. Which is why they call this the forever chemical in PFAS. Mm. And they're forever chemicals. But we're we're taking the forever out of forever chemicals, breaking the carbon fluorine bond right at the surface of the of the elect of the anode. And uh, and then the rest of the PFAS basically 
fragments out until it's very, very basic non-hazardous compounds. And it just keeps swimming, swimming on by once it's broken down. So there are no filters. You know, there's no brine, no concentrate, no reject that's formed. There's no waste in, in general that, that we form. And we're able to, to just charge that right out. Another really good thing about this too, from, I'm just speaking from the technology side and, and you asked the question. So I'll elaborate. We also produce other types of good chemicals. Like we call these oxidants, like chlorine and ozone and hydrogen peroxide. So we're disinfecting the water as well. You were know, removing some other contaminants like ammonia. These are, these are kind of, these are nitrogen compounds. Some other in my world, I call them organic. So they're just, you know, organic chemicals that, that are typically not good to have in, in, in water. So we remove a lot of those as well. So while we're degrading PFAS, we're also degrading a lot of other things, which is really, really very much of an added benefit for customers. And, and if the audience can kind of get an, an idea of, of how long this takes, right? Like, is there, can you kind of walk us through what the average landfill size is and like how long would it take for you to take all of, all of the landfill and basically convert it via one of your mobile units or one of these, these now stationary units? How does it, how does it work? What is like the time scale that we're talking about here? So fortunately and unfortunately, it's forever. It's always going to rain on the landfill and the, and the landfill until it's closed and lined and, and sealed for forever. It will always have, even, even close landfills have leachate, although small typically. But, you know, every time it rains, it goes through all that trash and, and, and now you still have that nasty leachate water. So. The average size of a landfill is probably 50,000 gallons per day, which is a decent amount of, of, of flow, but, but it's not unreasonable. And so every landfill is different. So I can't really say, tell you how many of, how many skids would be necessary, but it's sort of on the range of 10. Sure, so, sure. It's not crazy, right? We're not deploying like a hundred mess, you know, a hundred, hundred skids in parallel. It's, it's, yeah. it's very manageable to handle right, the whole, right. the, the entire flow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that makes so much more sense while you guys are moving to kind of a, a fuller scale deployment because the mobile the, the mobile situation is great to kind of build a proof of concept, get something out to a landfill ASAP, and then you can go ahead. And because it is a forever a forever issue every single time it rains, a Clarity basically just lives right next to the landfill. We're there permanently. There yeah. are some projects though that are temporary. In which case, we still take our we take our trailer. We've been you know we have some projects with really really neat customers to destroy firefighting foam. They have lots of firefighting. You'd be surprised. You know, it's not just airports and not just fire academies and whatnot, but there's food and beverage companies who are working with and some others who have big storage tanks. And that's an awesome opportunity for us to take the trailer, park it there, process it all through and mm -hmm. and then leave and be done. Right. And all they don't have PFAS to deal with anymore. That's yeah. awesome. It's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. That is really cool. I want to kind of go back to your founding story. Why did you like? Why do you why do you care about PFAS? Where did where did Clarity come from? What's the what's the story of Julie starting this company? Yeah, so I started learning about PFAS when I was in my undergrad. I went to WPI. It's a technical college in, in Worcester, Massachusetts, and my first degree is actually in environmental policy and sustainability. I ended up working for, or started working for the US EPA in Boston in 2010 while I was doing my undergrad. And that's how I learned about PFAS. I learned about PFAS at EPA. And back then it was called PF, they were called PFCs, not PFAS. That was, that was kind of the, the, the nomenclature back then. And I was doing a lot of stakeholder engagement on 
you know, on Cape Cod, mostly in, in, in New England, right? So on Cape Cod and New Hampshire, you know, some, some places working on the policy side. I did, I graduated with my degree in environmental policy and, and sustainability and then stayed on for a little bit more to get a degree in engineering. And uh, then I worked for the US EPA for, for a couple of years. And then I decided to go and pursue a PhD. And I got a fellowship to, to pursue the PhD. So I started that in 2014. And I was researching innovative water treatment technologies. And one of the technologies was electrochemistry. And that is the, the base technology. I mean, really the core technology of a clarity. I filed the first patent for the company when I was still a student in 2016 and then started taking some business courses. I actually went across campus, took some MBA courses and definitely had a lot of whispers in my ear that I really had something going on and, and took first place in the university pitch challenge and and spun the company out in 2017. So technically, didn't finish my PhD, but I did have about three and a half solid years of PhD breaker. That, that's such an inspiring story. And so, when when you started and and, and you won this pitch competition, can you for for the for the entrepreneurs li- listening out there? I think it's always exciting to hear kind of those first few steps. How'd you get from zero to one of getting the technology, and what what lessons do you have? Right. I mean, as as entrepreneurs, I think we always stumble and we look back hindsight 2020 you're like ah that's the thing if i didn't do that it would like i would have gone so much more quicker or i could have spent less money yeah two two kind of questions there what was that what was that zero to one journey and what what lessons do you have for for the entrepreneurs listening yeah yeah so in no particular order about one is find advocates that you can talk to talk about your idea and people who can connect you to especially customers or potential customers at the time you know even if you don't have a prototype you still should be talking with people who could potentially buy your product or, or, or service. So surround yourself with people, people who will inspire you, who will help you, put you in front of, in front of the right people and promote you. And I did that at, at, at UMass, especially with their entrepreneurship program. I was very tied in there doing, I did an accelerator there and did many more accelerators after that. And these are, these are programs that, you know, really truly accelerate your, your, your company. So that's one. Number two, I touched on this, but but really focus on who the customer is and try and find that early product market fit, even if you don't have a, a prototype. And that goes to my number three point, which is especially, so I come from the hardware side, right? But even software, get a prototype, make a prototype, even if it's in duct tape or if it's the, this most simple code or what, you know, it's whatever, whatever it is, like get a prototype and start testing it. I think that the faster that you can do that, the faster you can show that you have something and you can try and validate it and you will learn so much going through the process or have somebody build it for you. I mean, whether you build it or have somebody else build it for you or just yeah. something super simple, build it, yeah. get it out, test it. So people, I think that, I, I think just doing that and, and like working really hard to, gosh, we made a million prototypes. I don't know. I, I think I have six still, like one probably in my house. I was like this mad scientist building prototypes, but... Yeah, eventually we got, you know, we had customers pay for us to build prototypes and do, do testing and whatnot. But it's so important to prove it out, even the simplest little thing. So like, I guess, tactically speaking on those two things, one on the customer side and the second on the prototype, what markets were you first looking at? Like, it seems like you guys have kind of zoned in initially on this landfill side, but what was the markets you didn't, you, you had in your, on, on your whiteboard, but you ended up not, you know, going towards, that's question one. And then question two is, I'd love to like hear from you. What, what did that first prototype look like? And also I think for the audience, because sometimes 
we hear that so much, but as, as an entrepreneur that's first getting started off, like what did that tactically look like? <laughs> I'm laughing at both of those questions. <laughs> my gosh, starting a company, it was, I definitely, my, my, my head is screwed on a lot tighter. It's really important to go through the whole process and start with extreme naivety. So here we go. My original hypothesis, and I was very hypothesis-based. I actually took an entire semester class on hypothesis-based customer discovery. And I absolutely recommend that anybody who's even thinking about an idea to commercialize, Google Steve Blank and take some, take some, you know, Lee Munch type of classes and call customers and just try and see if you're onto something. So we did that. And my first hypothesis was that people who own a home or I guess I had two kind of demographics, people who own a home, I was targeting parents. And then also builders of new con- new construct multi multi unit buildings would be mm-hmm. interested in plugging something in in terms of a point of entry system where the water water comes from the tap to treat tap water where the water mm-hmm. comes in to the to the building and and destroys PFAS. And we were also doing it for disinfection as well for bacteria and viruses. I, I mean, I talked to so many people and so many construction workers. I talked to people who dig wells and I talked to suppliers of pumps and every, everybody. And actually I was really onto something and, and, and actually worked with a potential channel partner for a couple of years in this space. And they funded a fair amount of our research in the beginning. I ended up doing a, a pretty deep dive on the economics with this channel partner, Watts Water Technologies. I'll say them. They've been amazing. They're, they're, I, they're awesome. But we did a technology, technology kind of eco, sorry, a techno economic analysis and it's just the, mar- the margins and selling up through different, you know, distributor platforms. It just wasn't going to work out at the time. I do mm-hmm. think it's something that, that actually could, could work in the future, but it's, it's complex and, and just the margins weren't there. So that's where I started. We pivoted pretty heavily into the industrial sector focused. They're almost exclusively in PFAS. In 2019 and going to 2020, and then I think 20, probably 2020 and on, we've really focused a lot in, in landfills. Got it. And when you, I just want to kind of explore a little bit about what you were saying a second ago. You were, the, the PFAS side of it came out in 2019, 20, 2020. What were you looking at earlier on? You, you said kind of other other bacterial contaminants. What was the, what was the spectrum? And I guess... Even though you didn't do that yesterday, you know, back in 2019, 2018, it seems like with the with the Eclarity technology, you have the ability through that, through your basically anode and and different materials getting stuck to that, being able to actually look at other different things. It was really hard. And I spent so much time with advisors and, and myself and, and my team. Well, we can do this and we can do this and we can do this. And it's so easy to like... They all will do it all, right? And and there were yeah. definitely times when we were really drinking the cool. I think we were just going to do it all, but the, the lack of focus from a technology standpoint, from a go to market standpoint, everything just uh, just made it very difficult. I was always focused on PFAS, and but I but I was also it, it was sort of it was typically PFAS and microbes and bacteria and viruses. Mm-hmm. Originally, it was they were sort of packaged in the same you know product is what what I was trying to what I was trying to explore. We still degrade very easily if <laughs> we disinfect right we we break down bacteria and viruses, but we don't necessarily market that too much, especially in landfill each they don't really have any guidelines against bacteria and viruses. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. I guess more of that might come to use more around the drinking water standpoint or potentially like lakes and lagoons. 
if you were to look Absolutely. at that market, obviously. Right. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. It is, it is a good benefit. Very helpful benefit. Two kind of questions I have moving forward is with with the work that you're doing with 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 the clarity, what does the what does a roadmap look like moving forward? And how does that parlay into the regulatory environment? Because you brought that up at the beginning of like the EPA is looking at reg- you also worked at the EPA. Is there anything what's happening there, right? So like and how does that kind of roadmap into the future with what a clarity is doing tie into that regulation side of things? It's a great question. It's super complex. So we've been so focused on the engineering piece and getting getting equipment that can be field deployed. That's not gonna leak. It's not gonna cut for big cause of fire. You know, <laughs> like you know, going through this rigor, like re- real hard rigor with you know, with our manufacturer and with our with, with our team to get something that's going to work. And is, and is going to succeed for, for long periods of time. So that's been the focus for so long. And don't get me wrong. I'm definitely the, historically, I've been the market person, really, really interested in the market and the, and, and the go to market strategy. We now have a, have a pretty solid team. I think there's 17 people on the team now, which is super cool. Wow. So yeah, it's, it's awesome. So I have, I have an amazing marketing person and a whole, a whole, team that just has taken a lot a lot of our original concepts and really brought it to life and brought the bring brought the rigor around it which has been really important we like I said we're launching our our first permanent you know large-scale skid it's eight full-scale reactors maximum flow rates about 30 gallons per minute in a single pass right it's just mm-hmm. to destroy pfas depend and it definitely depends on the liquid and, and it does change but uh, but max is about 30 gallons per minute and we and we'll just stack so we'll stack them in parallel to handle handle higher flow rates we you know our big goal for this year is to get that skid on site at a customer site and we do, we do actually have a commitment for for a customer from a customer to put that on site so we're just in the process of kind of solidifying that and getting and signing the paperwork and getting it on there but it's permanent i'll just slide in here too our business models is is a service model we've actually trademarked destruction as a service and we build on and operate and fully staff all of our systems we charge on a cost per gallon and we make it really simple you know really simple for the customer We're, we're responsible for all operations and maintenance we have a you know, performance guarantee, uh, PFAS performance guarantee, so the customer feels comfortable, <laughs> right? Just something, something like PFAS destruction is new. No one's, no one's really done it before, and so we're trying to take a lot of that that risk uh, out of out from the customer. So, anyway, so our big goal for this year is deploying that first skid. Next year, the goal is to have at least two two permanent up and you know running full scale systems. And uh, you know, we're working with big landfill own and operator owners and operators. And, you know, the goal is to really work with them as a partner and to scale to, to, to all of their landfills to alleviate their PFAS needs and, and risks. Yeah. Really. I, I actually love that. Destruction as a service. You're, you're a, you're a DAS provider. I, I like that. That's, yeah. that's really, and, and you guys price per the gallon, which eases the burden. If I was just to think about it from a capital investment or a capital investment side from the landfill, from them having to procure the capital for the equipment and move it out there. And I mean, you guys just, Say like we'll solve your PFAS problem. We're a we're a DAS company. We'll just charge you per gallon. That completely makes that, sense. That we we really install cool. it all. Yeah, we we do it all, which is which is really great. Yeah. Directly, you know, with 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 the landfills and and our other customers. And, and what does? Sorry, go ahead. No, go for it. I thought I say you had another question, and I and I can't remember. Oh, and you were just you were talking about how how it relates to you know regulations and the, the regulations and the side, yeah. Yeah, it, I mean, it is so tough. Some of our customers are, are screaming for a solution right now, in which case we're going on site, 
doing doing all the work with them. Some of them are screaming for a solution, but aren't going to press the go button until you know some of the regs are, are officially you know coming in. And we do anticipate it. everybody anticipates that regs affecting our business and, and PFAS was really as a whole are going to be coming in throughout 2024, which is for in a startup's land. Though, although we move really fast, it's so far away. Far away, tomorrow. yeah, from a startup right, it's, standpoint. It's tomorrow. I mean, these are massive. <laughs> these are massive equipment installs. You know, we work with really great engineering firms, design firms to to do the whole drawings of you know what the the whole system and even the even the housing looks like. So you know, they're 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 big. They're big, big projects. So regs coming in in 2024 is essentially tomorrow for us. But it's also it's also a little bit scary because the day that the regs come in, you know, we're trying to build up our supply chain, even staff. You know, we've got we just hired our first supply chain person. We're we're working very closely with our contract manufacturer and trying to make sure we have that plan ready for when that when that go button hits. We at least have predictable timelines where we can get volumes of of these systems out. It's scary, but it's but it's really exciting. Yeah, that is really yeah. That's that's super exciting, and you're you're kind of at this inflection point, both in terms of the ability for your product to work, right? Because you have these proof of concepts out there, you've you've deployed the mobile units, and then intersecting right with regulation coming out in twenty four, which will just be a forcing function to get more deployments out there. Totally makes yeah. Really exciting time. So, so we're at almost at time. I have one question that I like to ask all of the guests here at Liquid Assets. Do you have a book or a show or even in like a Netflix show or a podcast that you listen to that has kind of changed your outlook on the way that you built the business or your life or even water or PFAS that the audience can audience can grab? I do. You think of, I don't have enough, I don't have a ton of time now with three young kids and running the business for, for all these things like I used to, but this, there, there are so many good books for, for founders and just especially founders getting started. I can't, I can't even think of the name of the book that I'm trying to reference now, but there are tons of good startup books. I typically like, I like some of the neg- negotiation books. Those have helped me a lot. I've been listening to the book Who? It's all about interviewing because, you know, we're doing a ton of interviewing and hiring. That's really helpful. Developing an actual scorecard and a checklist for, for interviewing and asking these, you know, tough, tough questions has been really helpful. So yeah, maybe not a great answer, but no, the, 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 <laughs> definitely the book who, and then I think you mentioned the lean startup by Steve Blank earlier. Yeah, uh, I did. I did mention the lean startup. Yep. Yeah. Th- th- those are two that I'll definitely, I'll definitely ping on your, I'll put them on your profile when we, when we publish the blog. But definitely, Julie, thank you so much for coming on Liquid Assets. For all of those of you out there listening, you can find Liquid Assets wherever you get your podcast, whether it be on Google or on Apple, or you can go to liquidassets.cc. Julie, we've been a pleasure. This has been absolutely amazing. Thanks a ton for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. And yeah, thanks.